0: All right, good morning, we're gonna get started. My name's Troy, I'm the library department chair. Welcome to our lecture today. Uh, this is part of our one book, one college programming on the book, We Believe You, which has a number of themes that we're looking at, including um, sexual assault, which is the main topic of the book, but um, other things related to it. And today, we thought it would be an interesting kind of a new way to expand our conversation to look at um, some historical perspectives um, in, the, in the 20th century focus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, connected to, tw- to um, sexual assault. Um, to do that, we have um, associate professor of history, Josh Fulton. Josh has spoken with us many times. He's one of our favorite speakers and a great teacher. So thank you, Josh, for doing this. And I'll turn it over to him. Thanks, everyone, for coming.
1: Thank you, Troy, and uh, thank you to everyone who uh, to came. I know this uh, to came. I know this is a uh, a, a heady topic, a, a difficult subject, uh, but I think it's certainly uh, a, an important subject uh, and, and one that is uh, important to talk about uh, not just now, uh, but. Uh, but, but quite often uh, as uh, my, my main point that I'm gonna make for us today uh, is that for those who feel that they have become uh, more active and more engaged and more politicized in recent months, uh, that, that this story is a story that is much longer and deeper than the last few months. uh, That it is a a much more uh, significant story tied to the ethos of of America itself uh, and the foundations of America itself. Uh, And so with that, uh, I I had sort of geared uh, our focus to this idea of sexual violence in the 20th century. Both the act itself, uh, the institutions of power that surround it, its connections to race and class, uh, but also uh, to the, the threats of uh, social violence, uh, sexual violence. Uh, so with that being said, we'll see if this works. Um, what I thought we would do today is sort of divine, or define our talking points uh, of how we're going to construct this, how we're going to talk about this. Uh, look at the constructs of sexual violence. Uh, the role that power plays in this, the role, of course, uh, that the many themes of American history play in this as well, uh, and also really see how this story, which begins well before 2017 and 2018, can be connected uh, to the many things that you read about in the news uh, and that you hear about and that are discussed. Uh, it's, it's very interesting uh, in preparing this particular conversation uh, and in this particular talk. Uh, I, of course, you know, do lots of reading and, and preparation and things and I do it not only uh, in my office, but you know, other parts of the world, so at the gym or something. And it's amazing to see acts of, of harassment or, or acts of uh, conflict that occur as I'm preparing this type of thing, the things that you notice is is shocking, uh, truly within uh, 2018. So overall then, again, what is our point, right? Sexual violence uh, in its numerous forms, both the acts, the enforcement of it, and the supposed threats in cases such as that of the uh, mythologically sexualized uh, African American male have been present within America since our beginning. Uh, Sadly, uh, it has been a a part of the American story uh, from the colonial period. The idea then in understanding that, in recognizing it and admitting to it, I think can serve to help us better understand the more recent movements uh, that have come to greater discussion, Uh, the idea of it being then Uh, that they have a much longer story than what our modern news cycle uh, necessarily wants to to give us uh, and that it can tell us. So what I've done uh, is construct a series of of points then uh, on this idea of sexual violence in the 20th century. There are so many ways to approach this. There are so many ways to engage with this, to understand it, and to talk about it. I mean the concept of, of gender as a, as a category for historians to, to really accept and embrace and understand and talk about really is something that even though it's only been the last 40 to 50 years they have really been talking it and accepting it, uh, that they approach it from so many different ways. Uh, so that being said, uh, the first point is the one that you see here. The history of sexual violence in the United States is not specific to the 20th century but has its roots in the power struggles of the beginnings of the American experience. right? America as a nation, of course, is born out of its colonial heritage of the late 1500s and the early 1600s. Those transplanted Europeans, when they are creating cultural settlements, are doing so, of course, uh, with the legacies of their European heritage in mind. That European heritage embraced a legal construct uh, that we still reckon with today, uh, such as issues of marriage and consent, uh, and how we define that, and how we construct it. Also, it is an aspect of this that relates to citizenship, uh, because when it comes to things like marriage, uh, when one is, is, is married, right, uh, particularly as a woman, the question of loss of citizenship uh, is actually a concept that is developed here. The late 1700s is a time, though, of revolution. Uh, it's a time, though, in which America is being created. Uh, you do have activists who do lobby for some measure of gender equity as they might perceive it in the time. Perhaps the most famous quote is one from Abigail Adams, uh, the fairly famous wife of of John Adams, the second president of the United States. uh, When she, with her many letters back and forth to her husband, encourages him to quote unquote, remember the ladies John. Now, of course, sadly, those who were building the government at the time, don't particularly have that grade of memory with those types of things. And as a direct result, of course, the government that is created is one that is inherently uh, of inequality. But we tend, of course, to think of this as an era of these founders whom we have little to no connection with whatsoever. But again, this idea of a sexually violent past is something, I think, that you know, we need to better reconcile ourselves to. So here is an image of Dolly Madison. You know, some of us may have an understanding of her uh, as possibly the wife, right, of James Madison. Some of us might sort of understand her position in the War of 1812 and helping to get some of the items out of the White House and to be able to rescue it. Uh, But we may not necessarily understand how Dolly Payne Todd, eventually engaged, right, in the 1790s and the early 1800s in America. The stories that she told about living in places like Philadelphia, today we would find incredibly shocking. Uh, The writing states that when she would walk out of her house, that she would be mobbed. Now, Dolly Madison was considered when she was eventually um, uh, a, a single mother Uh, the most attractive woman of her day. Uh, And what the the, the sort of writers would chronicle is that these young men would wait for her outside of her house. Uh, They would follow her from point A to point B wherever Dolly Madison would necessarily go. Throngs of men just sort of, you know, the the idea that this was at some level acceptable or encouraged, uh, you know, for women of this particular day uh, to be able to do this type of thing. Point two. A core aspect of sexual violence in the 20th century has been white men against African American women and other women of color. But this has its roots in the institution of slavery, particularly in the 19th century. The story of the 17th century, of course, is a story of European migration and a story of brutality against indigenous communities. Beginning in 1502 and then eventually in 1619, we start to see the active importation of African slaves to the United, what will become the United States. That process of chattel slavery, of course, was one that was constructed under gendered terms and, of course, issues of sexual violence. The status of a slave, whether or not one would be a slave, followed the status of a mother, meaning that an owner could purchase a female slave, could assault that woman, she would become pregnant as a result of that assault, and this would add a further slave to that individual's household. Right? It was possible then for one uh, to increase one's wealth if one was a slave owner through these types of processes. Right. What does this mean then? Of course, issues of consent right, were non-existent uh, for slave women as well as slave men throughout the 1600s and into the early 1700s. Right? This process was common, it was constant, and it was encouraged. There is, of course, evidence of attacks in indigenous communities as well, but where we tend to focus much of this right, is in this story of, of African slaves. Now, The overwhelming majority of African slaves actually, uh, of course, do not arrive in what would become the continental United States. Most go to South America, right? Uh, So communities like Brazil and and elsewhere. But when slaves, of course, uh, are brought onto ships in West Africa, uh, they are, of course, stripped, uh, they are segregated on the basis of gender, uh, and, of course, will endure uh, horrors, uh, untold horrors. Uh, in the process, of course, known as the Middle Passage. Uh, This is a process where slaves are forced, in some cases, uh, to dance and perform uh, and face even sexual assault while they are aboard the ship. That institutionalization, then, uh, of the right of slave owners to the bodies of their slaves, particularly the female slaves, right, is a common and assumed cultural principle and cultural value that is inculcated beginning in the 1600s. Now, the institution of slavery, as it evolves, grows exponentially after the 1700s. Fairly famously, Eli Whitney and his cotton gin, uh, of course, contributes to the explosion of the not only importation of African slaves, but the use of slavery across what would become the Confederacy during the American Civil War. That chattel slavery, of course, Uh, has a series of constructs before the war that then define the legacies of that society in the war's aftermath. Which brings us to point three. Following the Civil War, America entered its era of reconstruction that we still arguably grapple with today. Those who of course have debated others over issues of monuments certainly know what I'm talking about. Those seeking to maintain white supremacy in the former Confederate States and elsewhere did so on a gendered premise. White American society was defined through the preservation of what they termed white female purity. Beginning in 1865, what you will see, of course, is a community of nearly four million individuals who are now free. The question of how they are integrated into the economy, let alone society, is what reconstruction, of course, in many ways is defined by. And the argument, of course, a defense of slavery, had been that African American men, in particular, were preeminent threats to the security of white women before the Civil War and an argument against emancipation. This becomes a more sort of pressing concern in the aftermath of the Civil War once slavery has, of course, ended. African American women uh, entered sharecropping situations as well as domestic service, and found and faced common and constant threats from their employers at every turn. What were known, of course, as the segregated laws of Jim Crow made it difficult for African-Americans to be able to find employment outside of that on the employ of whites, and as a direct result, in many ways, were forced into these situations uh, that endured for decades and decades and decades. Now, an image like this from a newspaper at the time, of course, chronicles the realities uh, of the African-American experience in the aftermath of the Civil War. Both the KKK, uh, white rifle clubs, and other ultra-white supremacist nationalist groups rigidly enforced the white supremacist order with violence. African-Americans, of course, throughout the end of the 1860s, 70s, and 80s were brutally repressed and, in many cases, murdered. What I find interesting about that, though, is that the service in which they are sort of constructing this uh, has come to be popularized and mythologized within American popular culture. And the gendered nature of that legacy is fascinating. Some of you may be familiar, may have seen the film Gone with the Wind, uh, you know, the late 1930s film uh, featuring the experiences of Scarlett O'Hara, uh, who you see pictured here. This is, of course, based on a book by Margaret Mitchell uh, and a popular book uh, for its day. Right? Gone with the Wind was the most popular film having to do with the Civil War uh, in the 20th century uh, and was a film, of course, uh, that depicted uh, African-American women in these sort of settings uh, and also made the protection of Scarlett O'Hara uh, a preeminent cause uh, of the post-war world. Now, Our battery is running low. Let's see here. There we go. There we go. All right. So what are we then seeing by the time the late 19th and early 20th century is coming into being? As America entered the 20th century, many of its laws and customs reflected its earlier heritage. Women, particularly married women, were commonly subjected to sexual harassment, sexual violence, and rape. As a result, the term itself, I think, is an interesting one. From the days of European common law, the relationship between marriage and the concept of consent uh, is an issue that we would have dealings with well through the 1990s. Typically, the way this worked was it was assumed that once a woman entered into a marriage uh, with a husband, Uh, that consent was fundamentally given uh, from the moment that woman said, I do. Meaning that there was no such concept as marital rape. It did not exist. Uh, The husband had full rights uh, for the most part over that of his spouse. Now, case law of the late 1800s and into the early 1900s in looking at women who felt uh, that sexual assault of course and issues of rape uh, would lead them to seek divorce tended to be varied uh, based on what state you're talking about. So for example, how consent is interpreted, let's say, in Vermont is different than how it might be interpreted in, say, Connecticut. But for the most part, the pushback against the concept of marital rape is really only a 20th century construct, and one in which it is not until the early 1990s that you see most states beginning to work on legislation uh, that carves out definitions of issues of consent when it comes to issues of marriage. Point number five, America's age of industrial success saw women, children increasingly threatened, and immigrants, non-white, or gay men were blamed. The issue, of course, that we're dealing with here, is not just the act of sexual violence against these particular women, but also the supposed social threats that society constructed for their definitions of wanting to preserve these certain groups. That being said, women, of course, at the end of the 19th century, entered urban environments and workplace environments uh, across shop floors, not only in places like Chicago, but elsewhere around the country. Uh, that they had not entered uh, in previous decades. Uh, the late 19th century and early 20th century was a new experience for many. Uh, and of course, the sad reality of that experience was that many of those women uh, were pressured into forced uh, sexual relationships uh, and saw experienced sexual assaults as a means of preserving their employment uh, in many of these cases. Remember, this is an era, of course, in which freedom of contract for workers was seen as a central principle of how workplaces operated, meaning that if one wanted to better define the terms of one's work, regardless of gender, it was an incredibly difficult proposition for one to be able to do that. The late 19th century is also a period in which we see millions of immigrants from numerous countries entering into the United States. Not only from what we would define as Western Europe, certainly areas like Ireland and Germany, but elsewhere, right? Areas like Russia and Lithuania and Poland and Italy and elsewhere. In those particular cases, we see a high and rising level. Okay. Uh, We see a high rising level of nativism, right? A backlash against the presence of immigrant groups. Now, most notably, uh, an example of this might be Chinese immigrants who had arrived in the 1860s to help construct the Transcontinental Railroad, but who by the 1880s were banned in the first act of immigration restriction the United States federal government ever created. The social construct that existed for those individuals was a thoroughly gendered one. The assumption was that Chinese women, by the nature of white society at the time, were assumed to be prostitutes. uh, And that their bodies needed to be regulated and restricted and essentially banned from American soil. This high rising level of nativism also extended to European immigrants as well. And nativist organizations in places like Boston, New York, and Chicago, in the literature that they set out, constructed immigrant men from specific communities as being particular threats to white women in the period. So the idea being then that immigration restriction is necessary to make sure that these women are being preserved and protected. The same issue of immigrant men also being a threat to white women also extended to the idea that gay men and the process of in the existence of homosexuality was in and of itself a threat as well. Perhaps the most famous case of this is a case from England, uh, where Oscar Wilde, that noted, uh, of course, playwright uh, and author, uh, is of course charged, uh, and his case not only makes it into the British press, but of course makes it to the United States. Wilde's case, set before Victorian mores at the end of the 19th century, uh, sort of laid bare this idea that homosexuality was at some level a threat to how masculinity was defined and that men who were homosexual were thus threats particularly to young children. This is part of the reason actually in England why you see the rise of actually the Boy Scouts. Uh, The assumption being uh, that there was a need to teach and instill these values of male virility. Uh, So again, not only do we have this idea that the need to preserve uh, female purity uh, and, and child purity from threats of sexual violence uh, were necessary of course for immigration restrictions. And this contributing to the rise uh, of the immigration policy uh, that came to define US immigration policy in 1921 uh, and again in 1924. Uh, but we're also gonna see of course the issues uh, of the early 20th century when it came to the idea that, that bodies themselves must be restricted. Uh, so, of course, eugenics, right, as a social construct uh, and as, as a medical construct uh, is popularized in the early 20th century period. The idea of it, of course, being uh, that certain levels of criminality are hereditary, certain levels of race can be sort of transmitted, and so that you must be able to then restrict bodies uh, and control bodies in order to ensure the type of social value and social order that you might desire. As a direct result of this, particularly within urban and immigrant environments, what you will see is direct lobbying for forced sterilization of women. Uh, The understanding of that being uh, that this will help to preserve, again, this moral order uh, that folks are lobbying for uh, in the early to mid 20th century. This concept of sterilization uh, for women in particular was aimed primarily at women of color uh, and women of what we might call the working class uh, or the the sort of working and struggling poor. The desire to be able to receive some measure of aid, some measure of welfare uh, for these women uh, resulted in the existence of these forced sterilization laws in some cases that were maintained uh, in the United States, in some states, for decades. Uh, Places like the Carolinas, for example, uh, it is through much of the 20th century. So here we, of course, see some women uh, on an industrial shop floor. Uh, Of course, this, while not only backbreaking work, uh, the threat of sexual violence would have been endemic for those women in the period. Point six, uh, new urban areas in the early 20th century upended social conventions for men and women, redefining public space and social life. By the time the United States enters the First World War in 1917, the United States military constructed a view that the transmission of what we today would call STDs, or sexually transmitted diseases, were inherently a threat uh, to the manpower of the United States. And so as a result, the military should be able to work effectively with local officials to control women as they see fit. The understanding of that being that it was necessary, uh, again, for national security. The manner in which this was promoted was what they called social hygiene. Uh, And so what you would then see uh, is military protection police working in many cases in areas around US army camps with the understanding being that they would be able to, again, control women who they defined or deemed as suspect uh, in this particular era. That process of being able to have the state control women's sexuality increases as you move into the 1920s and into the 1930s. The 1920s is usually a period that is relatively popularized for issues or things like the Jazz Age and flappers and dating and drinking and all of these types of ideas. But women's experiences during this era were a spectrum. Uh, so while women are able to engage in new types of social engagement, uh, there are also popular organizations like the KKK uh, that underwent a renewed interest in popularity at this time uh, and cracked down in many cases And what they argued were acts of sexual immorality. There was also at this time a WKKK, a women's KKK, uh, that also helped to reinforce this. Something else for us to consider as well that while, of course, during the era of the Great Depression, uh, the United States' president, Franklin Roosevelt, would support a new deal to try to get the country working again. This is done so under increasingly gendered lines, meaning that the emphasis was on employing men, not employing women. And as a result, women were forced into situations of prostitution and other horribly, horrible situations Excuse me, of forced sexuality. This is an image uh, of young women who have joined the Navy uh, during the First World War. And there's a lot of different ways in which scholars are going to be looking at a situation like this. There are certainly expectations of service for both men and women in the First World War. But within that mobilization, the underlying social assumption was that women at some level were a threat, because the assumption being that they were transmitters right, of what was termed venereal disease, or VD. What this meant was a rise again in police organizations and institutions uh, to supposedly police these women as well as younger children. With that being the case, women who were brought into the realm of these particular organizations, who may found themselves cited, checked, arrested, etc., would in some cases be sent to organizations where the assumption was that these women would need to be, quote unquote, rehabilitated. Uh, In Portland, for example, out on the West Coast, uh, a city famed, perhaps, for its liberality in the 21st century, uh, this was a city that was noted for its restrictions of women and its creation of agricultural communities where these women would be sent to with the understanding that they would, again, be taught this idea of a new moral discipline. Now, Portland was not the only community that had something like this. Uh, In and around Chicago, there existed a farm as well. So again, while well we may conceptualize the 19 teens and 20s as an era of the flapper, right, this idea of, of openness, and while there is some level of truth to that, the era of restriction also exists here too. Right, we may look at images from the New Deal and from the 1930s and conceptualize them as real, interesting images of Americana, such as this one here. We need to understand the realities of the 1930s at least 50% of the United States here of its working people were either unemployed or underemployed during the height of the New Deal and at the height of the Great Depression. And there was a clear view that men should be able to retain their jobs but women not so much. Uh, Particularly married women, it was expected that they should voluntarily relinquish the jobs that they would have had in the marketplace during this age. As a result, When New Deal programs are installed, they are working under this gendered assumption as a means of getting men back to work. Some of you may recently have seen on PBS's American Experience, uh, a show called The Boys in the Boat, uh, depicting uh, a rowing crew uh, in the 1930s that eventually won gold uh, in the 1936 Olympics. And while it was a fascinating story of hardship for those men, what's interesting is that some of them in the summer would work jobs construction jobs that were available for young men through the federal government and these New Deal programs. Of course, those jobs were not open to women. And so as a result, many of the local women here were forced into cases of prostitution. Point seven, the Second World War remains the apogee of sexual violence during the 20th century, both on the home front and abroad. There was an expectation, of course, that women would do their part in the Second World War. The phrase that historians use is this idea of mobilized sexuality. Women were expected to do their part in the economy, they were expected to maintain the home front, but they were also expected to remain dutiful wives, girlfriends, and mothers. Uh, These varying levels of sexuality that they are supposed to maintain. The reality, of course, was that rape was common and constant during the Second World War. In the Pacific, for example, right, the Japanese military, of course, had kidnapped tens of thousands of Korean women and used them as sex slaves in state-run brothels, what are known as the comfort women. During the war in Europe in particular, right, rape as done not only by the Red Army but by other military organizations as well, were numerous uh, and in a way unable to be counted. The figures on rape in Europe uh, during 1943, 1944, 1945 are rather varied. Uh, I've seen ones that suggest that half of all women in Berlin were raped at the end of the war uh, and and others that say that the figure is even higher. In, of course, the Holocaust, uh, of course, not only were there work camps, but brothels existed in those camps uh, where women were forced into these positions. Even in recovery, all right, even in recovery, as the United Nations sought to be able to provide assistance to what were called DPs or displaced persons, women in these particular DP camps uh, found themselves in positions in which uh, sex, of course, was forced. Now, when it came to the African American soldiers uh, who deployed with the US military uh, from 1942 through 1945, those soldiers, of course, also, as a threat at home, found out that that threat continued for them, that supposed threat continued for them as they traveled with the US military uh, throughout Europe in World War II. More often than not, African American soldiers were more likely to be charged with rape, convicted of rape, and sentenced to death uh, vis-a-vis white soldiers in the same period. So here we, of course, see an image of a woman working in a factory during World War II, the sort of supposed Rosie the Riveter image. And this is a, a good image, right? Uh, the idea is that we are all in this together, right? The sense of, of commonality and work. And to a certain extent, right, that's true. The Rosie the Riveter image, at least at some level, bears out reality. But women in military service, of course, during this particular time, found restrictions at every turn. The USO, right, that organization committed to providing comfort and assistance uh, to US soldiers during the war, hired what they called hostesses uh, to station uh, the of course, USO sites. Uh, There were what were called junior hostesses and senior hostesses. Senior hostesses tended to be women over the age of 30. The expectation was, of course, that they would be women of upper middle class backgrounds, they would be white, Uh, they would be married, and possibly mothers themselves. The expectation was, of course, uh, that there would be a strong and understood restriction of their personas in these environments. The junior hostesses were expected to be women unmarried in their late teens and early 20s because they would be doing things like dancing uh, with these US soldiers. Uh, And the idea was, of course, women not involved in these particular circumstances would find themselves under higher scrutiny uh, and maybe, of course, come under suspicion by the police forces at this time social protection divisions existed around the country because again, the idea was as sexuality was being mobilized, women then became not only, yes, necessary, but a threat as well. Uh, And this of course defines the experience for many during World War II. African American men, Uh, experienced race riots in black communities in cities like Chicago, uh, in New York, in Detroit. Uh, They existed in a segregated military uh, and in many cases were restricted from combat related roles. The idea of course was that white men were the ones capable of this whereas uh, African-American soldiers would not be capable of it. Jim Crow as a concept traveled abroad. The US military particularly in England enforced a segregated situation uh, throughout most of the facilities that these men would travel to and again as a result when the US military invaded France in 1944 uh, they did so at a time when the French countryside argued that really any black soldier uh, that came into the country was at some level a potential rapist uh, and needed to be prosecuted for this. Point number eight. The civil rights movements of the 1950s and 60s were strongly influenced by sexual violence against African-American women. Despite that, the many rights struggles of the era tended to favor a male and heterosexual view of America's sociocultural landscape. Not only in the post-war era does the United States seek to rebuild Europe uh, after the horrors of World War II, but the United States, of course, uh, gets involved in that Cold War. Gay men in particular were perceived as a potential security risk uh, during the war. The understanding supposedly, given the illegality of homosexuality or homosexual acts, uh, that they might be able uh, to be turned by the Soviets. What was called the Lavender Scare, uh, populated the 1950s uh, within American life. So were there these connections then between anti-communism and a real anti-LGBT movement. In the early 1950s, the many civil rights organizations for African Americans, not just the NAACP, of course, had been building for decades cases against local communities, dealing particularly with issues of sexual violence. Uh, The case of Recy Taylor in more recent history, of course, has gained greater popularity through its being mentioned in the news and by figures like Oprah Winfrey. Recy Taylor was, of course, a young woman in her early 20s who was brutally raped Uh, in 1944. The case against her was that African-American women uh, at times, of course, uh, were viewed as prostitutes and the assumption then being that she had somehow invited this or sought this. But Recy Taylor's case is not the only case of African-American women being sexually assaulted by white men in the 1940s. We have evidence and there are any number of, of female scholars on this uh, that enumerate dozens of cases here uh, against these women during this time period. So again, uh, Recy Taylor's case uh, is perhaps the most noted, perhaps the most sort of, uh, sort of recent one uh, for folks to be talking about. Again, she was brutally uh, raped in 1944. Uh, the African-American uh, supporting newspaper, The Chicago Defender, in fact called this quote, Dixie's most blatant rape case. Uh, despite the fact that some of the men involved in this act of sexual assault flat-out admitted uh, that they had engaged uh, in this particular act, of course nothing came of it. Uh, although eventually, in 2011, the Alabama state legislature would issue an apology uh, to Reese Taylor a few years prior to her more recent passing. Uh, her case, of course, reflected a commonality for African-American women in this time. Now, the figure of Rosa Parks is perhaps most common for many, right? We have in this image, right, Dr. King there on the left, uh, Ms. Parks there in the center. Parks had been a tireless uh, civil rights advocate throughout the 1930s, 1940s, and into the early 1950s, prior to the Montgomery bus boycott uh, in the middle of that decade. What I think is significant for us to understand is of course the sad threat and constant threat that African American women who worked in domestic service faced across the South and particularly in places like Alabama during the 1950s. Given the low pay that existed, public transportation was the reality for most of these women. Uh, And so bus drivers, white bus drivers, were empowered with a great deal of privilege legally Uh, in order not only to move these women out of their seats and to move other African Americans out of their seats, but also, of course, uh, to work with police to prosecute these women if they did not accord to the laws of the day. And we have, of course, evidence of cases of retribution. Uh, One woman in particular, Viola White, if I recall, uh, in 1946, uh, who attempted, of course, to refuse to move uh, and was eventually charged and convicted of disobeying uh, a bus driver, uh, which was a a crime uh, at this particular time. Eventually, the Montgomery Police Department sought retribution against her by capturing, kidnapping, and raping her 16-year-old daughter. Uh, That process and that concept was a common and constant threat during this time. Now, other groups as well uh, faced issues for their sexuality. Here, of course, is an image of a gay rights demonstration in New York City in 1976, uh, further demonstrating, of course, for these issues. Point nine, post-war America and the failures of the counterculture on gender spurred many rights debates that we are having today. Women in particular faced not only ongoing sexual harassment and violence in the workplace, but at home and in schools. The gendered conflicts with the rights struggles of the counterculture were common and constant. Many of these civil rights organizations tended, of course, to be dominated by men. Uh, And as a result, uh, you see a really, truly, terribly sexist uh, sort of era of this. Now, one of the things that scholars use as a means of discussing the common and commonality of sexual violence uh, is in things like marketing. Uh, And I have a couple of images for us. You can find these pretty commonly on the open web, but they reflect the realities of American cultural life in the 1950s and the 1960s. And I picked out two for us that I think really are testaments to this. This is a fairly common image that is used in documentaries uh, and in other films as a means of demonstrating the realities of what women are facing here. This is an ad for coffee, uh, and the assumption here is that if this woman does not buy her husband this particular coffee, that the husband has the right of of, of sexual violence against uh, his wife for this. Uh, And this one is an interesting one uh, that I came across recently in a search. This is a 1967 ad for pants. This is an ad for pants. It's difficult to sort of see here, uh, but it's an ad for pants. And the argument then being, if you don't have these particular, it's an ad aimed at men, uh, obviously, but the idea is that if you don't have this particular kind of pants, you're not going to be allowed really to be a part of this seeming game uh, that this woman is encouraging these men uh, to engage in. And again, that's 1967. That's 1967. All right, point 10. Uh, this is our final point. As America has sought greater inclusion in its identity and narrative since the 1970s, more prominent discussions of forms of sexual violence and the supposed threat of stereotype have occurred. So again, what we've been trying to say is the reality of the acts of sexual harassment and the acts of sexual violence, uh, of course, have been common, constant, and ongoing. And inasmuch as they have been common, constant, and ongoing, there is also these hyper-mythologized supposed groups that are the threat uh, that need to be supposedly stopped. Since the 1970s and 80s, Right, the idea, of course, of women working in migrant farm communities and the acts of sexual violence that have occurred against them uh, have gained in relative notoriety. Uh, sadly, of course, uh, the acts of sexual abuse that have occurred uh, within church communities, particularly the Catholic Church, have obviously gained in notoriety. Uh, and of course, again, these constructs—excuse constructs, me—of sexuality as being in and of itself a threat in some cases. Uh, so the trans community and this type of thing, I think, is noteworthy. All right, to kind of bring a final point to this, right? I think what we need to do is really take a look at how the modern issues of 2016, 2017, 2018 can then be connected to these long-standing constructs of gender that have existed within American society and the supposed rights over bodies uh, that men in particular have claimed that they have. Uh, And the sad reality is that, of course, that is often overlooked, that that is often marginalized. The way that I sort of describe this, uh, in many cases, to my students uh, in this idea of its overlooking uh, is through pop culture, right? If we look at something like, let's say, the Disney Pocahontas film, right, a Disney cartoon of the early 1990s, it supposes, right, the image of star-crossed lovers, John Smith and Pocahontas from different races uh, and and different backgrounds and experiences. Even if, of course, this had been a true story, it would be a story today that probably would be better seen on Datelines to Catch a Predator, uh, because he was, of course, in his late 20s, early 30s, and she was a preteen girl. Uh, But, you know, Disney makes a musical about it, so, you know, there you go. All right. The sad realities of the commonality of sexual violence against especially women are an active and common part of the story of America's 20th century. Now, there may be critics who would state that by, of course, laying this bare, by discussing this openly and commonly, that at some level that that is unacceptable, that it is unpatriotic in a way. But arguably, the service of the reconciliation, I think, of the American story is an inherently patriotic and good thing to do. Thank you. Questions? yes
2: thank you first of all that was fantastic i feel like as you mentioned in the last point laying bare this history Mm -hmm. really helps us see like how sexism has been institutionalized so it gives us a way to talk about it Mm -hmm. so i really appreciate that but thinking about like those people who will say no that's unpatriotic Mm -hmm. what is your like in class or mm-hmm. if you're talking with your friends, what's your response to those people? I mean, really, like if, if someone's really pushing back against this, this history and saying, well, you know, we have to overlook it because the United States is so amazing, like how do you, how do you talk to them?
1: How do I, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, the way that I usually term it uh, and define it, I, I usually define it around something like World War II Uh, And uh, there are a number of comedians who have attempted to sort of historicize these types of things. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of of, of Craig Ferguson. Uh, And I believe he made the point, you know, the Nazis had a really great anti-smoking policy. But that's not really the point, right? You know, when it comes to the Nazis, right? And, And what I try to say, both in class and to friends, is it's okay to say something like, I think the internment of Japanese Americans was a horribly racist thing. I'm still glad we won the war, right? That it's okay to say both, and by doing so, doesn't denigrate how I feel about the country, right? It doesn't denigrate how I feel about things. Now, that may run me afoul uh, of a lot of folks, uh, but that's okay. Uh, you know, I'm okay. If, 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 if me sort of saying that, you know, sexual violence is bad makes me not okay, I'll be that guy. That's okay. Thank you.
3: I don't know how much you know about this. I came across an article, I, I want to say a couple months ago, that talked about the fact, so when you go back to slavery, you talked about how it was common practice, right, yeah. to, for the the slave to be raped because they could procreate and you could have more slaves. But I also learned that the the um, the slave masters, the white men, would rape the black men as well mm-hmm. to humi- humiliate them and to kind of put them into a subservient stance. So of course, yeah. it was it, this was given this history because it was talking about how a lot of um, Afro-Caribbean, like the African diaspora here and of in the Caribbean, can be um, homophobe. Right, it goes back to this history that happened, that this happened, when this would happen constantly. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know if you know about about this as well.
1: Oh yeah, no, I'm aware of it. Uh, you know, because. You know, for, for gender scholars, right, uh, for, for other fields, right, there has been that common that discussion over the last 50, 60 years, right, you know, do we define rape as an issue that is, is, is it a sexual issue, is it a power issue, right? Uh, and in many cases that, you know, it, it's a sexual act that's about power, right, uh, of, and, and that in particular, as you sort of say, right, it, is an act about uh, forcing humiliation and forcing a demonstration of power. Uh, and, and yes, uh, now in terms of actual figures, uh, of how common and constant it was, uh, you know, off the top of my head, I don't know. But what I would say, it's probably difficult uh, to ascertain, uh, given how, of course, shunned uh, homosexuality was generally within America in the 19th century. Uh, but no, I'm aware of cases in which that happened uh, and in, in, in which uh, owners sought that out as an avenue of, of attempting to do that. So, yeah. Any others? Other questions? Sure. Uh, Can you uh,
4: give an example of one thread we might see today that we would see in the 20th century as well?
1: What do you mean by that? A thread of? Like uh, you were mentioning, like how
4: they saw the after some kind of threat that we have received today
1: mm-hmm. regarding sexual assault. Um, yeah, I mean, regarding assault generally, right? I mean, there are aspects, of course, of the, the way in which the, the criminalization of, of African Americans uh, on a variety of levels, of course, has occurred. Uh, an example of this might be, say, for example, white flight. Uh, in the 1950s and the 1960s, right? Uh, because what you end up having, right, is realty companies that are trying to sell you the idea of, you know, come out to the suburbs, you know, move out here. This is a, a fundamentally and place to be. Why is that? Well, because there is the... Criminal element, uh, you know, that exists within urban environments, right? That's a euphemism for African Americans mm-hmm. and primarily men, uh, of sort of that that type of thing. Uh, so, you know, c- cases like uh, uh, some of the African American, you know, teens and men uh, who have been killed, right, uh, recently, right? These types of things, uh, the supposed threat that they had posed, which facilitated the supposed necessity of their death, uh, right? That would be sort of an example of of those types of things. Others.
0: I, have, I don't know. This is a question or a comment, but maybe you can elaborate. I was—I'm su- always surprised when I read about the lived experience of women, especially in the late, the mid 1800s, in the early 20th century, yep. where it wasn't uncommon to have dozens of kids yep. die in childbirth. Right. For men who remarry, who have kids that were from a previous wife, they marry someone new who has other, more kids, right. but there's this whole different kind of existence that um, advent of birth control and the debates that we have now about control of bodies relating to abortion, that we don't even have a connection to the roots of some of the, the movements that happened to end this existence that is so far away that now we've like a new context has evolved. So I'm kind of stumbling through, obviously outside of my area of expertise, I wonder if you had any
1: Comments on that? Um. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I, I can speak to that somewhat. I mean, the nineteen teens, the nineteen twenties, and, and into the nineteen thirties. Some of what I'm talking about there, right? It, it's, yeah, the the idea that that consent, you know, for a married woman is is assumed uh, and expected, uh, and the idea, of course, that in most cases. Uh, in states, right, the, the illegality of contraception, uh, you know, w- with that as well, uh, created a, a horrible, you know, position and horrible choice uh, for, for women in many cases to have to make and have to endure. Uh, so yeah, you do get uh, activists in the 19 teens and 20s uh, who, who do attempt to speak out uh, for women's uh, sexual health uh, and reproductive health. Uh, women like Margaret Sanger. Uh, but of course, n- needing to consider, though, uh, that individuals in the 19-teens and 20s, even though we might look at them as, as being relatively modern uh, vis-a-vis others around them, they're still individuals in the 19-teens and 1920s. Uh, so speaking out on that is wonderful, but Margaret Sanger also embraced eugenicism and stuff like that, uh, and, and issues of whiteness and white supremacy, so it's still a conflicted story. Uh, but, of course, the the sad realities of what we're facing with the, uh, yeah, the lack of access to this is is, is, a, is a very galling and difficult thing.
4: You said before, many activists throughout the years have been like killed, like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah, sorry. They don't want to not, they don't wanna speak, out. They wanna speak out, and just they're uh, not. They don't want to speak sh- out. They want to speak out and just, but they get silenced by the the higher ups, and then that's why you mentioned genocide with the mm-hmm. the nineteen teens and twenties.
1: So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. There's a couple of things there, right, of, you know, you're talking about the, the social and cultural constructions of race within America that are thoroughly gendered, right, uh, so this idea of the, the African American male as this sort of, uh, you know, brutish sort of sexual threat, right, a- and then the idea of, of, of sort of socializing a culture sort of around that, right because we're talking about not only the acts of violence themselves, right, but then this supposed um, mythologized stereotype, right, that then gets accrued to individuals and individual groups. Um, but, you know, when talking about things like, uh, you know, sort of genocidal acts and, and the 19, sort of 1930s and 40s, you know, it, it's important also to, to recognize things like, you know, I mentioned the Red Army, right, even though the Red Army is perhaps more noted for this, right, the U.S. military and members of the U.S. military, right, engaged in rape commonly and constantly during the Second World War. Uh, And, uh, you know, forced sex was a common uh, concern, particularly for French women, uh, during the war. Uh, And rape was never prosecuted, uh, wasn't prosecuted at the Nuremberg Trials. Because the idea would be that you're prosecuting individuals who are engaging in what we call war crimes, but the allies, of course, are not going to admit that acts that they engaged in were actually war crimes. Uh, and so as a result, uh, you know, those prosecutions don't happen.
3: Yeah. So I was just thinking about this. So one of the things the older generation does mm-hmm. is they talk about the younger generation and how you know, look at what they're wearing, look at how they're dressing, look at what we're seeing. <sighs> but now you show, and one of the things you think about is that, so so a lot of times I hear them condemn the younger generation of as course. part and for part of what's going on today with the, the sexualization and all the sexual violence and stuff, but you see that this existed. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm in their generation right Right. oh yeah and it just and uh, and i'm so i'm here thinking about this so this existed in their generation yeah in different forms Uh right so it's almost like a progression that has happened whereas they a lot of times the older generation tries to say oh it's that younger generation and the music and this and that but you see it's just an evolution of what was happening before
1: oh yeah i mean the the forms of this existed it's just a question of the medium in which it's being demonstrated, right? Uh, and so, you know, for the, the the marketing and advertisements that I showed, right? Those are two. That's a that's a drop in the bucket to the reality, of course, of of of, of what uh, existed within that particular time. Um, I saw one from the end of the 1960s, early 1970s. Was an ad for, uh, I think, in Life Magazine, uh, and it was a woman uh, basically looking at an aspirin bottle, uh, and uh, it said that, well, you know, being a woman is hard, being a mother is hard, so you may fall prey to what is called housewife headache, and so by our aspirin, uh, it's gonna make you better, uh, you know. And that's still, that's the end of the right? That's, that's the midst of those rights struggles, right? Uh, that, that that gendering is still, con- that, that's still okay, right? Uh, you know, which is, is is of course a sad reality uh, of that. So yeah, no, the denigration of earlier of, of of sort of more recent generations, you know, is is in many ways, you know, you could make the argument reasonably that it's sort of older generations not willing to reconcile themselves to the fact of the realities of how they lived their earlier existences, uh, you know, for uh, for that period.
4: So yeah. Going off her point, Mm -hmm. I find ironic the day the day Columbine happened, uh, the president was setting bombs over I forgot the like overseas. Okay. And it just shows like the media trying to portray the music, Marilyn Marilyn music, They're trying to portray his music, saying that uh, because of his music, because of the all the media, that happened. But at the same time, the president was like lo- uh, silently like, sending bombs overseas, and it just shows um, how the media can portray um, a certain generation, and they can uh, make them look, look really bad.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the manner in which media sort of is used at different times in the course of the American story is in and of itself a totally you know, other field uh, you know, of, of examination. Um, you know, during World War II, for example, right? These cases of uh, of sexual violence and you know, rape, the military's not going to let the media let that go out, right? Because the idea is is movement towards victory. Hitler bad, right? And you know that's an important thing to restate, especially these days. Hitler bad, right? Uh, but uh, the. The, the issue that you're sort of saying is, you know, one needs to be able to think critically, of course, about the realities of, of, of what exists, certainly. Um, you know, that idea of the Lavender Scare, right, that idea of supposed, uh, you know, gay men as sexual predators, right, in the 1950s, right, that is something that, that is trumped up by the media, uh, you know, d- to be certain, uh, you know, during that time. yeah Okay. Oh.
0: One, one more question.
1: All right.
3: Um, you might not be able to fully answer this question, really, but oh do no, you sorry. think that we will ever kind of overcome this sexual violence and gendered issues and the cycle that we've been going through for, like, the last couple hundred years?
1: I hope. <laughs> I, I, I've got a five-year-old daughter and a two-year-old daughter, and my wife is currently <laughs> pregnant, so uh, I, I really hope because... Uh, uh, yeah, I spend a lot of time talking about different times in, in history that were, were pretty awful. Uh, and you know if I can do anything to uh, work against that, that horror and speak out against that horror, I'm more than happy to do it. Uh, whether or not it'll happen, I, I, I think we search for perfection and that's a wonderful thing. Whether we achieve it or not, that's another story. Uh, You know, have we gotten better on a lot of things? Yes, of course we do, Uh, but, you know, I don't know. The sad reality is I don't know.
0: On that note, probably a good point to stop. How about a round of applause for Josh? Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thank thank you. you all for coming.